a murder in a secluded house. The only suspects, a cast of colorful characters, each with a dark secret and hidden motivations. An eccentric detective uses the power of deductive reasoning to uncover the mysteries of the household and unmask the killer. History, the podcast where we explore the historical and social contexts of popular board games. I'm your host, Kaylin, and my pronouns are they, them. And I'm your host, Andrew, and my pronouns are he, him. People have loved murder mysteries for centuries, but Clue managed to transform this classic genre into a board game that's easy to learn and still fun to play over half a century later. Today, we'll be diving into the history of its creation, its many adaptations, and the reason why Clue has earned its place in our cultural imagination. Clue is an episode I was really excited to dive into. Part of the reason I was really excited for it is because it's in a domain we're both interested in. Because we both spent a large part of our undergraduate lives running a mafia club, which I feel like Clue sort of captures a similar mood. I don't know if you would agree with that. Yeah, so for context, I founded the McGill Mafia Club at McGill University when we were an undergrad, and then you succeeded me as the director, president? Yeah, director, president of the club for pretty much the rest of my time there. Yeah, Yeah, so we spent a long time designing different spreads of rules of mafia which some people might know as werewolf we played a lot of mafia we gm'd a lot of mafia games yeah and we both are really interested in hidden information games discovery mysteries Mm -hmm. and clue scratch is the same itch because it's also about a closed circle of suspects where only the people in this room could have committed the bad thing, the murder. Yeah, and everyone's trying to figure it out in some way. I think another thing we talked about a lot in the club in terms of demographics is that there are, like, certain buckets of people that would like to attend the club. So there's people who are really interested in, like, deductive logic or reasoning, and those comprise a certain amount of players in the club. And there was another bucket of people that were interested in, like, psychology. There are a lot of psychology students. And also, another bucket would be sort of like drama slash actors. And these people would also come to the club to get a sense of the sort of the same thing I think Clue is offering in its gameplay. Yeah, and I think that Clue comes from a different place, but is doing a very similar thing, which is that it's trying to combine the drama of a mystery with specific grounded game mechanics. Yeah. Yeah. By which you can deduce certain things and figure it out. Yeah, yeah. Which, also I wanted to note that, I think for me, out of a lot of the classic North American board games, like we played Clue in preparation for this episode, and I really felt like Clue really held up even in the year 2020. Like, we're not going to get really into the mechanics on this podcast, but I still want to note that I do feel like the mechanics of Clue actually 
felt really refreshing and unique even when we played it. Yeah, compared to a lot of games that are sort of the games that a lot of people have in their house. Mm -hmm. like In North America specifically, right? Yeah, North yeah. America specifically, like Monopoly or like mm -hmm. Sorry... I guess, backgammon, parcheesy, I don't know, like these kinds yeah, of checkers, checkers. right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, games that sort of just find their way into your closet. Yeah. Um, Clue is is actually quite good. It yeah. involves a different set of skills. I think a lot of those games end up being um, roll a dice, roll mm -hmm. dice and do a thing, draw yeah. a card and do a Very thing. Very simple mechanics. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think Clue unfortunately gets sort of lumped into the same group of board games i you know in preparation for this episode i went on board game geek and i looked and the rating for clue is actually 5.7 out, out of 10, 10 which you know some people i guess would say that's not bad for board game geek yeah but <laughs> even then you know i don't know i i think it has less of an appreciation than i think it sort of deserves right yeah, exactly. um, Clue's underrated, 2020. So we played the game with myself and Eric, our friend, and we sort of talked about how we didn't, like, I didn't grow up with Clue in my household. I know you played it when you were growing up, but I assume that at the time when Clue was created, true crime and detective stories were probably, like, pretty popular amongst the generations, maybe two or three before ours. Is there something exceptionally viral or important in the news at the time that led to the creation of Clue? It's not so much that there was a specific news item that led to Clue being created, as that Clue was a formalization of earlier games that were very popular, but that were mostly disseminated in an sort of oral tradition. Right? Sure. Yeah. So one game that had been really popular, maybe starting in the mid to late 1800s. From that and, long ago. Yeah. yeah. And continuing to when Clue was first uh, invented, I guess, in the 40s, was Murder Wink. Oh, I've heard of Murder Wink, actually. Yeah. I thought I wouldn't know what game you were about to bring up. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So Murder Wink, for those of you who have not played it in elementary school, is a game where everybody walks around a space and one person is the murderer and they murder people by winking at them. And if you get winked at, then you have to wait a few seconds and then usually dramatically die and fall on the floor. Yeah. And it comes in the drama acting part of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so where the um, production comes in is other other people are obviously observing. And if you think you know who the murderer is, you're supposed to raise your hand and you say, I accuse. But you don't say who you accuse. And then a second person can second your accusation by saying, I accuse. And then you count to three, and you point at someone. And if you point at the same person, then you win. But if you point yeah. at different people, then I guess the murderer wins, or you sure. die. Yeah. Probably depends on variants. Yeah. Um, so there were a lot of similar games that were played in, you know, big houses, hotel rooms, mansions, where there's some signal that the murderer is able to do that kills people mm. and the people die and then other people have to 
have to watch for the murderer and figure it out sometimes in the dark, you know, yeah. sometimes with, with various sure. objects or whatever, sometimes with notes where you pass notes to mm-hmm. people, all kinds of things. And it's a similar thing where you're combining, I guess, deductive reasoning, the sort of closed circle of suspects and drum dramatism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm sure this is a concept that has been popular pretty much forever, right? As long as murder has been popular. So, funny story. This genre, the closed circle of suspects, was really popularized around the same time as detectives became a thing. Oh, sure. Or what the sort of modern conception of what we would think of as a detective. So Scotland Yard, which is the British like police force. Yeah sort of comes into being and and starts working with detectives in like mid 1800s early 1800s and in the mid 1800s there's a very famous murder called the Road Hill House murder um very rich family very evocative name yeah exactly very rich family they live in this house on a hill in a forest and you know one one day the four-year-old son of Samuel Kent, who's the sort of patriarch of the family, his four-year-old son, Francis, goes missing and is eventually found dead in, like, the outhouse, basically. And, of course, only the people who were in the house at the time could have killed him because he was put to bed in his room the night previous and he was found outside in the morning. So... And, you know, it's a forest. It's very isolated. No, no, one no one's going to, like, sneak into this forest house, right? Exactly. This is the classic setup. Yeah, so at first yeah. everybody's blaming the maid, right? There's a maid that they've hired who sleeps in the same room as the kid. Oh, maid. And everybody says, well, the maid's sleeping with the father, and then the son found out. Mm. So they killed him. But eventually a detective gets sent out. His name's Jonathan Witcher. And he gets sent out to investigate the case. And he interviews everyone in the home and does sort of deductive reasoning. Stuff we would think of as, like, very commonplace now, but back then was, like, not super common common, when murders happened, right? And unpopularly, he accuses the boy's older sister, who's about 16, 17. Yeah. Her name's Constance Kent. Uh, Backstory on the family that... Samuel had recently remarried after the death of his first wife and was showing clear favoritism towards his younger mm, children. Yeah. So the reasoning went that, you know, the girl was jealous. She admitted she was jealous and really didn't like her half-brother. But yeah. this guy, Jonathan Witcher, his accusations are really unpopular. People are like, no, it's the poor woman who did it. It can't possibly be the rich daughter. It's the maid, obviously. What are you thinking? Um, and he's kind of like, he does arrest her, but then she's released. She refuses to... The maid? No, the, uh, the daughter. Oh, the daughter was arrested. Yeah. Okay. Um... And was released. And was released. She doesn't say anything. And only five years later, she goes to her priest and confesses. And then she and the priest go together to the station. And she Uh, confesses to the murderer. The reverend. Yeah. Wow. It's actually interesting that you use the word popular. Because that implies that this is sort of like a media event that people are following. Oh, it right? is. So, like, this must coincide sort of with maybe, like, mass print and sort of, like, 
not investigative journalism, but the reporting of these sort of cases in the newspaper or something that the common person could read. It must yeah. have been really new and really exciting to read this sort of stuff at the time. Yeah, I'm sure it was, right? I mean, this is a time also where you're getting a kind of popularization of crimes and writing about crimes and discussing crimes that, I mean, in a sense, is very timeless, right? People are always sort of excited about murder. There's a morbid fascination that's very real. But you also get, you know, in the next, like, within this time period, right, the, the dawn of modernity, you get, like, wax museums where people sort of stage, like, restage murders in, like, wax form. Or you get, um, you know, Jack the Ripper was extremely popular. This was a little later, obviously, but very heavily publicized. Yeah. Um, very much sensationalized, right? And this is the same. And some of the people who are reading these articles and paying attention to this case later become very famous authors. So we're talking Charles Dickens, Arthur Conan Doyle, you know, people course, who yeah. end up writing these these They mysteries. last through time, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because it's such a timeless idea. Yeah. Right? yeah. And so this kind of, this specific murder, this sort of sensationalized, isolated house whodunit, yeah. becomes the inspiration for an entire genre of texts in Britain and eventually elsewhere in the world. Sure. Um, the actual game of Clue, as far as I know, is... Based on novels of one of these authors, which is Agatha Christie. Yes. Right, which is a popular murder mystery novelist at the time, as you've said. Yeah, so she's a little bit later. Sure. Um Yeah, so she's born in, like, 1890. When was the Roadhill House murder? Roadhill House murder was in, I believe, the 1850s. Sure. Uh, 1860. Okay. Yeah. So, and then Agatha Christie's born 30 years later. She's sort of part of the second generation, right? If Arthur mm-hmm. Conan Doyle is writing, you know, late 1800s, um, she's writing, Agatha Christie is writing, like, through the 30s, and then all okay. the way into, like, the 60s. Right. This is when she's really popular. And she's extremely popular in that generation. She was very, you know, released in a lot of novels, became very popular for... Almost as like pulp fiction, right? Where you would read through her books. And part of the exciting thing about reading Agatha Christie, as with Arthur Conan Doyle, is that you follow along with the mystery and are given the tools to be able to solve the case by the end of it, by the time... Yeah. Before the even the reveal, right? It's yeah, part exactly. of the spectator. Yeah, so you you're know, not just experience. a reader. In some sense, you're also a player. Yeah. Yeah. So she, I guess, was the evolution of this... Um, sort of genre at the time. Yeah. Like a second wave, as you're saying. Yeah, yeah. I, would, I would call it a second wave for sure. Yeah. So, you know, Agatha Christie in the 30s released all these novels. Probably a lot of people growing up in the time must have read, and like, it just must be in the discourse in some way. Was the designer of Clue directly inspired by her works? Or was it more of a, like we were talking about before, like murder was just this interesting topic that everyone was sort of into. According to his family, he was really into these mysteries. So this is, his name's Anthony Pratt. Yeah. He's born in 1903. He's a musician. When he becomes a musician, he starts getting jobs on, you know, hotels, cruise ships. And in these places, he gets to experience a lot of these games that I was talking about, like Murder Wink, these kinds of less formal 
murder games that are still in the same genre, right? Mm-hmm. And he's also a big fan of Agatha Christie. He's a big true crime fan. Yeah. He's just like a crime junkie, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know the type. Sure, yeah. Um, and he, during the Second World War, works in, uh, I believe, a munitions factory in England. And it's while mm-hmm. he's doing this very menial work, sort of doing the same thing every day on his own, he starts coming up with an idea for a game right. that would take these mysteries that he really loves and put them into sort of a board game form that can be repeated. Mm-hmm. So he was like a menial sort of factory worker at the time, who was a musician. So did he have like formal game experience? Had he, you know, he played these primitive games. Games like Monopoly must have sort of been in the discourse at this time as well, right? Around 1949. Was he, you know, experienced in this sort of thing? Or was it, you know, just sort of brought out of wanting to make a new experience in a genre that he loves so much? Yeah, I don't think he was a super experienced game designer. I mean, I haven't read much about this. There's not much information out there. Mm. There's actually very little information about him compared to a lot of sort of big game designers of these old games for a few reasons but yeah i think one thing you have to keep in mind is that this is sort of before the formalization of game design as a profession Mm -hmm. right so game design is almost like a kind of invention at this point you know that's the way that people talked about monopoly where you invent a board game and you patent it and then you just the singular board game becomes its like a unique invention yeah. once it reaches that level. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So it's less about, you know, having ideas of like particular game mechanics and understanding sort of the structures of game design and the way that people studying game design now would know. Yeah. And more about, you know, it's something that like anybody can make if they're inventive in a certain sense or whatever. Yeah. So Anthony Pratt, did he get, a patent for Clue at this time? He did, yeah. So he makes it during the war, so like early 40s. And then um, he gets a patent in 1945, gets a contract with the games manufacturer Waddington's. Waddington's. Originally, the game is called Murder! <laughs> Exclamation mark. It's <laughs> uh, <laughs> a great name. Yeah, very to the point. Um, his wife, Alva, does all the illustrations for it. But the game isn't actually released until 1949 because there's actually shortages of, of materials after the war. <laughs> so they're like, we don't really... Yeah. We can't so they had their the like, little like handmade copy and the rules that yeah. they've had ready to go for a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So they, they design it, I think, in about 43. Mm-hmm. Gets the patent like late 44, early 45, and then it has doesn't get wait. released. Yeah, has to wait like four years. Sure. He was gra- yeah, he was granted the patent in 47. He files it in 44. Yeah. And in when in when it's released in Britain, it's not released as murder, but it's released as Cluedo. Cluedo. Yeah. Not Cluedo. No, it's Cluedo. It's a combination of Clue and Ludo. So Ludo. the game that we know as Parcheesi in Canada and the States is called Ludo in England. 
Oh, okay. And so it's a sort of funny, popular like con. An, yeah, people of an existing game that people would know already. Yeah, yeah. yeah. To and give course, people a reference. Because of the name of Parcheesi, because it's called Ludo, people also recognize like Ludo as like a Latin word or whatever. So they understand that Cluedo is like, there's clues. Sure. And it's like people in game. Britain would understand this reference. People in Britain would understand this reference. Okay. So Cluedo, at this point, picked up by Waddington's. Starts to gain popularity in Britain. How how did how fast did it reach popularity? You know, we we are in North America here. It must have at some point jumped over. Yeah. yeah. So it. I don't know if it's immediately a success, mm. but what happens is that in fifty three, four years after the game comes out, Wannington goes to him and offers him a sum of money for the rights to sell the game in America instead of giving him a percentage of sales. Okay. And yeah. he takes it. Enough they offer him £5,000 at the time, which is about £100,000 now. Okay. So not a... Not that must be large at the time. There yeah. aren't, you know... I don't know. I think Pratt might be also having some sort of day job at the time, right? Yeah, like he just you know? he just had a kid. You know, right. it's a good amount of money, I or think. Or making a game at this time, right? Yeah. yeah. So he takes it. Um, yeah. And then... You know, it's manufactured as Clue in America. Yeah. And it does get quite big. So he would have made a lot more money, unfortunately, yeah. if he hadn't taken that lump sum. Yeah, there, there's no way to know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I think one thing yeah. that's cute is that when he was interviewed about it in, I think, the 80s, potentially early 90s, he actually cared very little that he didn't make money from it. Compared to, like, for example, Charles Darrow, the not actually, like, inventor mm -hmm. of Monopoly, made millions of dollars, right? Yeah. Became, like, really quite rich. A lot of these, like, popular game inventors or whatever would make a ton of money. And he made very little. You know, he lived, like, comfortably, but sort of in rural England. Yeah. Kind of enjoyed a, a very, yeah. like... It's very pleasant, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, it wasn't even, like, popularly known that he had passed away until people started looking for him to celebrate, like, the anniversary of Clue. Sure, yeah. And they found out that... I think it was the 50th anniversary of Clue, and they found out that, that he had passed away. Mm, unfortunate. Yeah. But he didn't care, I think, is the cute thing. He, yeah. He sort of said, well, as long as people are enjoying themselves and it created, like, fun in the world, then that's fine. That's, that's the most important thing, Yeah. So it made it its way through Waddington's to America. So we, we played this North American version. And, you know, we did some research before. And I was struck, for example, by the fact that the green character in our version was not a reverend. Right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's actually um, Parker Brothers who get the U.S. rights. Right, so Waddington's. Waddington's is sells, in Britain. Yeah. So and Waddington sells the rights to Parker to Brothers, Parker Brothers yeah, yeah. who starts the manufacturing distribution and I assume also some of these localization changes that we would see in this sort of game. Yeah, yeah. so there's some early changes to the game when they when they release it at first, right? I think originally there were like ten weapons. There's a syringe and a bomb that get removed. A bomb. <laughs> I brought a bomb to the mansion. <laughs> yeah, I brought a bomb to the mansion. Um, then I blew up Mrs. White. Uh, <laughs> Or yeah. I, Mrs. White, blew up, I guess, Mr. Yeah. Body. But, um, yeah, there's a few there's a few initial changes before the game's released. 
you know, the number of weapons is cut down to six. Um, the number of people, I think, gets cut down. Uh, and then, as you said, when it's released in the States, I guess the biggest and funniest change is that the Reverend Green becomes Mr. Green because there's concerns that Americans will be able to see or will be upset to see a uh, Reverend... Commit a murder. Committing a murder, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, so there were mechanics changes, though. So the characters' weapons, the Cluedo that people who grew up in Britain had played actually was quite different than the clue that we would have played at the time. Yeah, so... Mechanically. Maybe to summarize the mechanics of the version of clue that most people will play, uh, you move between... There's a, The board has nine rooms, and then there are six potential suspects, and then there are six weapons. And the victim's always the same in the... I believe in the Brit the British version he was named Dr. Black and then in the American version he's called Mr. Body. Mm. Um but fair. Yeah. <laughs> fair. Fair. <laughs> um but uh every player has a handful of cards and the remaining cards are put in the center. So there's there's one weapon in the center, one room in the center and one person in the center and those are the circumstances of the murder you know for example mr green with the candlestick in the study yeah um so you roll the dice move around the space and then when you're in certain rooms you can suggest that somebody committed the murder in that room with an object Mm -hmm. and if your co-players can disprove it using cards in their hand then they have to tell you yeah Um, and show you the card that disproves it, right? So imagine that, but with more weapons and more people. Okay, so that that was the main difference. Yeah, that was the main difference. Sure. Other than that, it was, I think, pretty similar. It was also the removal of of Mrs. White, or was that at a different time? That was quite recent. Oh, that's very recent. Yeah, so like 2016, I guess. I don't know. There's a lot of board games these old board games that are, like, trying to be cool with the times, and part of it is this, like, weird, like, liberal feminism. Okay. So they replace Mrs. White the Maid with Dr. Orchid. <laughs> so yeah. Dr. Orchid, who is, like, I guess Asian and also, like, a scientist? I don't know. Very diverse. <laughs> like, very accomplished, yeah. It's yes. Nice, nice diversity. People don't have maids anymore, I guess, in the same way. <clears throat> yeah. I guess some people do. Most people do not. Yeah. Um, that's funny. Okay. So we watched the movie Clue. Yeah. Which was released in 1985. And I don't know. One thing that I was curious about is it was released in 1985. And it was brought over to America in 53. Yeah. Right. So the movie was made around 30 years after the release in America. It was an American movie. Clue must have still been fairly popular at the time must be really part of the North American discourse for there to be a movie made about it, right? Yeah, I think it was. I mean, I think I think it, it already at that point had like a pretty enduring popularity. Um, for instance, the version that we played was uh, manufactured in the 70s, I think. I think it was 75, right? I yeah, it was, it, it was, I believe, like, yeah, like early to mid-70s. Right, so this is like... An updated run 
they were still pumping out copies and maybe updating it a bit. Yeah, so from what I've read, the sort of standard editions of Clue were coming out, you know, 1950, 1956, 1963, 1972. So they're putting out new editions, and there's, I guess, demand for those editions every 10 years or so. The 1960s edition is delightful. It's very, um, like, 1960s animation. Looks a little bit like the Flintstones or something. Not in that it's prehistoric, but in that, just the, the, the aesthetic. Oh, that's very different. Yeah. I kind of like that, yeah. Yeah, it's very good. We have in front of us this very photorealistic version of Clue. Yeah, yeah. the version that we have, which is the, uh, 1972 version, Yeah, has photographs right they're like people yeah they're um, humans <laughs> the, Mrs. Cartoon. the picture of mrs peacock is my favorite she just looks like really affronted that she's even part of this gang of people yeah uh yeah we'll put these pictures in the show notes or whatever yeah um yeah so like there was this movie we'll watch that also really captured the mood and you know spectator feeling of clue which i think was really cool yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, it was it was kind of a bomb when it came out, which is surprising because yeah. it has a really sort of star-studded comedy cast, right? It's got Tim Curry, it's got Christopher Lloyd, Madeline Kahn, um, like Michael McKean, just like a lot of people, Martin Mull. It's like a pretty, pretty big cast. Yeah, um, sort of set up for success in a certain way. Yeah, but yeah. when it was released, it got pretty bad reviews, probably owing to the gimmick of the film, which yeah. is that there are three different endings, and people going to different theaters would get different endings. So they shipped, like, a different film reel to different theaters. <laughs> yeah. Um, Very inventive. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, the version we watched had all three endings in a row. And I felt like that was, of course, like pretty enjoyable and cool. A lot better, right? Yeah. Uh, I think that it doesn't. It's not popular in in the box office, right? No. It does like quite poorly, and then it eventually comes to television reruns, comes to VHS. Apparently, um, there's just a lot of cheap VHS copies of the film circulating at a time when VHS is like fairly expensive. So it gets really popular because of that. Because a lot yeah. of people just buy it and bring it home. And they're like, hey, it's pretty good. And these copies have all three endings on them. Um, so the film ends up gaining sort of a cult status. Yeah. And it's still really popular today. It's like a fun movie to watch with friends. Yeah. And genuinely, it's quite good. It's not I like... I thought it was quite good. It's not like a so bad it's good kind of cult film. It's actually quite funny. Yeah. And actually, yeah. Funny. I really respect the, you know, desire to really adapt the board game in a certain way, right? I feel like that must have really driven the decision to split the endings. Because part of the joy of playing the board game, if you're, like, role-playing a bit or trying to come up with the actual lore of what happened, is, like, fitting in the, like, random results <laughs> pretty much to the logic of the rest of the game in some sort of way. And so in that way, it really captures what playing Clue is like. Yeah, I think yeah. so. I think another thing about the film that's really fascinating is the transposing of these characters to an American context, yeah. right? And specifically an American sort of 80s looking back on the 50s context. The film takes yeah. place in the 50s, but was made in the 80s. Yeah. So 
the original context, as I mentioned, it's very British, right? You get this very sort of mansion in in the forest kind of thing, right? Um, it feels very based in a concept of like a landed aristocracy, <laughs> right? Like sure. people who are like who have like really old money, who live in these like lavish mansions. You've got you know the war hero. You've got the maid who like lives in the property. Um, I, even, you know, like the sort of like old widow, yeah. stuffy professor, young debutante. It's all very, it's all very like British. Yeah. British tropey. Yeah. yeah sort right. of British rich people trope, which follows from, I guess, the sort of long standing fascination with, with drama among the rich. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> Everybody yeah. has, right? We still have this, I think. Yeah. Um, and so when you bring it to America... In the form of the film, I think what's interesting is that it gets changed up into communism in a sense, or yeah, very politics cold, like focused. Cold War, yeah. right? Yeah, there's a lot of sort of Cold War references. Everybody works in Washington. They all, you know, like part of the mystery has to do with them all potentially having a relationship with communism, yeah. and the Russians. Right. And this is a scandal for the elite in America. Exactly. It's similar, right. like, drama for the rich. Yeah. <laughs> but it's just that the rich, instead of being the sort of, like, old landed yeah. money, is... Like government officials. <laughs> yeah, government officials, politicians, like, FBI agents. Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so, like, similarly, in Britain, there was also a clue media that was made. Like, we watched a few episodes of this game show called Cluedo that was run in, I guess, Britain. I think around the same time as the Clue movie? Or was it a little earlier? It's a little later, actually. It's a little later. Early 90s. So 1991, I think, is when the first season comes out. Yeah. It's really good. You can find it on YouTube. I really recommend you watch it. Basically, there's two teams of two celebrities each. You know, like C-list, B-list celebrities from the time. And we watch with them a few scenes from a murder, right? So it's sort of dramatized by actors who are the same actors in each episode, but each episode has a completely different canon. The characters themselves are also kind of consistent. So, you know, Mrs. Peacock is always the owner of the mansion, and she's sort of in a relationship with Colonel Mustard, and then her stepdaughter is Miss Scarlet. And then the Reverend Green is their reverend who, like, is around a lot. Mrs. White's the maid. Professor Plum is, like, inexplicably there. <laughs> um, yeah. He just sort of, like, shows up. Uh, but every episode, there's some other character who comes to the mansion for some reason and gets murdered by one of the, one of the main cast. And then after we watch these scenes, the actors come out into the the stage and yeah. they they role play as themselves while the celebrities get to question them or as as their characters right so yeah. they in character come out to the stage and then the celebrities get to question them and ask them details about where they were at a time and this kind of thing and expose contradictions and it's structured in such a way that from home you can also follow along with the murder yeah. They would offer extra prizes for people who could, 
answer skill testing questions over the phone because this is how you interacted with shows back then. Yeah, you called in with your guests. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And they announced in the next episode <laughs> if you won. If you won the previous episodes. Yeah, exactly. Prize. It was always like invariably some like 40 year old woman from like <laughs> like rural England who's like really, really loves, enjoys the daytime the television. Yeah, loves this show, right? Yeah. But the acting's like pretty good. No, and but it's the pretty, mysteries are pretty fun. Yeah, well written. Yeah, the yeah. mysteries are pretty well written. Invariably, the person who's murdered is just such an asshole that everybody else has a real reason to kill them because they have to give multiple people motives. Yeah. So it's usually someone who walks into the mansion and sort of like starts shit with everyone one at a time. Yeah. <laughs> and they're all really pissed off and then this person dies and, you know, they're all really upset about it, but they also look vaguely relieved. Um... Yeah, it's really it's really an excellent show. And it also captures this feeling of the sort of whodunit, the kind of mechanics of trying to figure out a mystery with specific clues, ruling out particular places and, and suspects and objects. Yeah. Uh, with a combination of, I guess, soft reading, but mostly hard evidence. Yeah, I think it does that really well. Like a... Of course, when we were watching it, we were able to sort of solve the mystery using just the video clips and evidence that they provided us at a certain point. Yeah, and the difficulty, level is, the difficulty level is quite good, too. Yeah, right? the way that they showed the information at the time was, was quite well written, Yeah, quite so. well paced. I think in addition to that, I do like the addition of like having teams compete against each other to solve the mystery in that way. I think it's not exactly like how it feels in Clue. But it does capture the spectator side of it in terms of everyone sort of getting the same level of information and reaching conclusions at, you know, at their own pace or using their own sort of like predispositions to do. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. And you get a bit of the dramatism too. I think the celebrities are usually quite into it. Yeah. You know, they enjoy the sort of back and forth with the actors. Yeah, of course. Yeah. All the episodes are on YouTube, so you can watch it right now. Now we're in this century, the 21st century. A lot of classic board games are now getting ported to, um, you know, electronic devices. Clue must have its fair share of digital ports. Maybe some interesting adaptations as well, right? The big ones are actually from the late 90s, like the 80s oh, and 90s. There's a lot the of sort CD-ROM of, era? Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of CD-ROM games and like VHS games and okay. like, you know... Sort of like, like point and click or like multiple choice games, similar to the TV show where you watch scenes and deduce. Right. I think this was a time where like real time video was getting really popular in these like CD ROM games, right? Yeah, like, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. So you get like there's a Commodore sixty four game called Cluedo, <laughs> for example. There's yeah. an email game. Okay. Uh, the description is really great. This is from 1999. Yeah. It says, Now, through the use of email, you can enjoy the classic Clue mystery game with just the simple clicks of a mouse. <laughs> so you, like, I guess, send emails with each turn. <laughs> <laughs> like, early, early games, right? Yeah, people the were used to play in this sort of stuff, right? That's what you had to do. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think it's really cool that people were, like, are adapting Clue for, like, the new mediums, right? 
Yeah. Right? It's especially, not just a port. Especially in the 80s and 90s. I think it's really yeah. fun, right? There's yeah. not many sort of recent games that I know of specifically... That you can directly connect to Clue, right? Yeah. I mean, the most recent one maybe is the Game Boy Advance Clue. Yeah. But this seems to be essentially a port of the board game. Yeah. Right? The kinds of, like, adaptations as opposed to ports are definitely happening, like, 80s, 90s. Yeah. You know. Things that are specifically related to Clue, right? Um, Yeah, exactly. I think it's really interesting that mysteries are some of the early games. So, I mean, there's a fair number of these kinds of games for, like, PC that get released in, like, late 90s, early 2000s, beyond just Clue, right? Of course. Um, Mystery games are, like, some of the early, sort of, early adopters when it comes to digital games. Yeah. Um, And especially in, like, CD-ROMs, things where you have these sort of, like, very on-rails, multiple-choice experiences. Yeah, narratively focused, I guess. Yeah, I think something that's interesting is that we really see this taper off like more recently because mystery games are inherently not replayable. Yeah, if it's focused on a, a single plot, yeah, in that sort of way. Yeah, if it's a whodunit, if the goal of the game is to figure out a suspect, it's really hard to make a game that really has any replayability. So you get yeah. games like... The most recent ones I can really think of are, like, the CSI games. Sure. I played yeah. one for, like, I think the, the Wii. Yeah. Um, where you point with your Wiimote at the screen and, like, find evidence. Yeah, like, point and click. Yeah, sort there's, of like, based. specific gestures you do with the Wiimote to, yeah. to, like, reveal the fingerprint on the gun or whatever. Yeah. But, um... Yeah. The murder mystery genre must fit really well in this type of game. Right? Yeah, like mist yeah. and like secret of monkey island like, exactly it's such a great fit for like a single player narrative experience yeah for these early games especially when people are trying to trying to take trying to adapt mechanics from other media into games in a way that'll make them widely popular yeah cool so takeaways for me um there's sort of like two things i was thinking about one is that I think more than Clue itself, I think it's really interesting how it has like a strong place in the whole like cross media world of murder mysteries as we, we talked about. Like it has a pretty large branch of that genre. And definitely we see impacts of Clue and, you know, early writers and creators of this genre in stuff that comes out this year, last year. In the modern century, you know, we just watched, you know, like Knives Out, which is in the same genre. Things like The Hateful Eight, which is also like a closed room, uh, you know, single actor who done it. Like we talked about at the beginning, games that are getting popular in the bluffing and deductive genre, Resistance, Avalon, um, things like that. They're still here, you know. <laughs> We're still in this this realm. This you know. Everyone still really deeply enjoys this genre for different reasons. And I think it's cool that Clue is like a big part of that, I think. Yeah, it's... I think what's appealing about this type of mystery, the sort of closed circle of suspects mystery, is that it appeals to such a broad audience. You get people who are really into, you know, as you said before, in regards to Mafia, people who are really into sort of 
hard evidence and deduction and yeah. playing in an optimal way. And then you get people who really enjoy the sort of psychology aspects of it, like bluffing and reading other people. And um, then you get people who are just interested in the kind of drama of it all. Yeah. And these mysteries have something for everyone in this. You know, this is why Agatha Christie is like one of the most popular authors of all time. Yeah. Right? Because whether or not you actually want to solve the mystery, it's fun to be along for the ride. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also why Sherlock Holmes is so popular, why you get these sort of serial publications in the yeah. late 1800s. Um, and then all the way up to Clue, which itself has this kind of similar structure, but in a formalized board game form, which arguably makes it even more widely appealing um, for one, you take out the actual, like, lurid details of the murder, so it's playable by kids, and it's so abstracted from actual murder that mm-hmm. it's not really disturbing, right? <laughs> like, you can play this yeah, when you're it's five. not, like, gory or, like, horror in that same way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so kids can still get something out of it, you know, without being scared or whatever. Parents don't have to worry so much. And you don't really require deductive skills, to enjoy the game, but if you are interested in this stuff, there's enough depth there. Mm-hmm. Um, so in a sense, I think Clue is both an example of the enduring quality of like mystery, the enduring excitement of it, and also was like a step forward in that sense, right? In yeah. that it made the mystery genre accessible to people who maybe didn't want the sort of scary details of murders um even people who don't who who struggle with reading evidence right? <laughs> like i think yeah. you know if you find that like agatha christie or sherlock holmes is too difficult for you to solve yeah clue is sort of solvable in a way yeah it like really condenses what like evidence is right yeah so, like very clean section Yeah, I also think Clue is really one of the first examples of sort of mechanization of mystery, right? And, like, mechanization of clues, making clues into hard evidence as opposed to just bluffing in the case of, or, you know, bluffing or reading in the case of, like, Murder Wink or any of those other games. Yeah, Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I also think there's something really interesting about Clue in regards to class politics. <laughs> right? It um, always seems to be part of it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's built into its, you know, DNA in some way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. As we saw with the Clue TV show, the reasons why people commit the murder invariably have to do with class. Yeah. Right? So there's one case where the victim is somebody who is protesting the um, fox hunt that is was very popular among the rich in Britain, yeah. right? Um, and in another episode, the victim is like a Russian millionaire who wants to buy the mansion in order to turn it into a theme park. And all these sort of like old money aristocrats <laughs> are yeah. so insulted at the idea that their old house could be turned into a theme park for the masses, you know? Yeah. Like... I think it's sort of overblown in the television series in a really funny way. Yeah. But I think it you can see it in 
the film, you can see it in a lot of these sort of peripheral media adaptations, yeah. that it's always about like people in this big house, right? Yeah. It's always about like mostly rich people in a big house and why the sort of central in the gate the case of the game and the case of the movie, why the owner of the house was murdered. Yeah. Right? And it's always about money. It's always there's always a way that people question the poor or question, you know, the maid always has a motive because she's poor, right? She's the maid. And in some ways it goes all the way back to the Roadhill house murder, right? Yeah. In that people initially wanted to blame the maid in that case too. Yeah. But the thing that's really exciting is thinking about why rich people would kill each other. Yeah. I think that speaks to, cause like we talked about how this is like really accessible and I think, <laughs> really interesting to think about how that would sort of speak and make it more accessible if the story is about a group of like rich people in a way that's like maybe not directly relatable <laughs> to a lot of people yeah i think so i think it has the same sort of broad appeal as like speculating on like drama within the british monarchy yeah or you know celebrity drama right yeah becoming a billionaire <laughs> yeah this yeah. sort of idea of uh, like you know this would not happen to me so it's fun to speculate on and, like, hypothesize about what you would do in this situation. Yeah, and specifically, like, it's, like, people who have everything. <laughs> like, why would these people who have everything commit this murder? Like, people who, who feel so entitled to have yeah, everything. Yeah, the entitlement, I think, is a big part of it. Yeah. In, in a lot of the media. Yeah. yeah. I think in that way, it lets people feel good about <laughs> someone being life. murdered in some way. Yeah, yeah right? I think... This is making me rethink, like, some of the other media we watch. Specifically Knives Out, I think, because it came out, like, in the last few months. Right? It Similarly, we talk a lot about the class politics and that, and I think it really, in some way, does come back to this idea that Clue also has about class. Yeah, absolutely. It's also about, sort of, the rich patriarch of a family, you know, being killed, and all of these, sort of, very entitled, very rich people around him who secretly have all of this family drama that makes them feel like, like it makes them seem entitled to committing a murder, right? Or entitled to somebody else's life. Yeah. While at the same time, they all, in their own way, criticize the poor for being bad people. Yeah, bad yeah, people. of course. Yeah. Yeah, I think the secret idea that anybody in Clue could be the murderer speaks to this, I think, fascination with the rich and why they murder and also a kind of deep suspicion of the rich. <laughs> yeah, that, that any they're of capable them, of murder. Yeah, even the old Miss Peacock, right, yeah, or whatever. Their wealth, like, drives them to be able to do these things. Yeah. Which I think is yeah. a good thing. Which I think is the real yeah. reason why I feel weird about Dr. Orchid replacing <laughs> Mrs. White, right? Yeah. Because I think that there is something crucial about including somebody who is, like, not rich. Yeah. And also something crucial about everybody in the family, aside from Mrs. White, like really being part of the upper classes and not necessarily yeah. having to work to do that. Yeah. Right? So, yeah, you yeah. know, you have like this military veteran who's still quite rich. You've got, you know, again, somebody who has a lot of power from the church or from whatever Mr. Green does in any of the adaptations, right? Yeah. Professor Plum is like, an academic, you yeah. know, an Oxford <laughs> academic, which has a lot yeah. of 
a lot of things attached to yeah. it. Um, they're all different sort of flavors of rich, right? Yeah. Inherited wealth of the stepdaughter in that way. Yeah, and then, yeah. you know, Mrs. White as sort of, in some ways, a class traitor, question mark. Question right? Mark. Somebody who, like, lives with and has personal associations with the rich. Mm-hmm. But also, herself isn't rich, lacks the resources that everybody else has. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Clue, Eat the Rich, Conclusion. 1949. Yeah. <laughs> 1949, Eat the Rich. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think doing this deep dive into Clue was really revealing for me. Right. Yeah, I think, I, think so. I, I really enjoyed really doing a deep dive into it. It felt like a genre deep dive more than necessarily just Clue. Yeah. I think I really enjoy future, you know, pieces of work in this murder mystery genre, in this whodunit field, with all the things I sort of, like, synthesized from doing this research. And Yeah, I think so. I think yeah. one thing that's really exciting to me about Knives Out is that it is so much a love letter to yeah, these old stories. It's really sure. a love letter to Agatha Christie um, and to Clue, both the film think, and yeah. the game, right? So I'm really looking forward to seeing like where the mystery genre goes next. I really wish more people would make like murder mystery games. Um, right. Despite the fact that they're not replayable, I wish that uh, that would happen. I'm really excited for Knives Out 2. Knives Out 2. <laughs> Knives Out 2. Electric Boogaloo. Yeah. 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 I think I've gained a pretty deep appreciation for the genre that I'm, I'm happy I have now. Yeah. Great. Cool. Uh, we release episodes every two weeks. And you can subscribe on Podbean or Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, you can also give us a follow at uh, Twitter, Playing History P. Yeah. If you like us, please leave us a rating and tell us your ideas for future episodes. Well, mine. <laughs> Fun. I don't have to pop. That's it for the episode.